G'day everyone, welcome back to Where Others Won't. It's been six months, almost to the day, since my last episode was released, but I'm delighted to be back behind the mic and interviewing some really incredible leaders and thinkers. If you've been following me, you'll know that I've been away writing my second book, which is called The Tough Stuff. And it focuses on the emotional toll and human experience of head coaching in elite sport. In the lead up to the release of the book, which will be in January 2021, I'll be releasing an episode each week that will talk about the topics I raise in the tough stuff. Episode one of this tough stuff series is with Canadian men's national soccer team head coach, John Herdman. When I put out a tweet asking who you would like to hear on the show, John's name was an overwhelmingly popular response. So I got in touch and it turns out he's been following the show and he's been a fan for some time. Honestly, I couldn't have wished for a better person to kick off this series of interviews. He's thoughtful, he's funny, he's whip smart, and he's a great coach. Enjoy this conversation with John Herdman. John Herdman, how are you, mate? I'm very good, Cody. Very good. Nice to hear that uh, Southern Hemisphere twang. It's been a while. <laughs> well, talking of Southern Hemisphere and, and our pension for nickname, do you have a nickname? I've only ever heard you. You're one of those people who your first and last names just get paired together. You, I've only heard you as John Herdman. Do you, do you have a, are you Herdy? Are you... When I was a kid, I was among a whole host of other nicknames that uh, are linked to my hand. But yeah, <laughs> ones that you can't mention uh, on air. Yeah, yeah, that's it. When when you lose a game, you just got to look up on Twitter and you'll see them all coming out. <laughs> uh, mate, I appreciate you coming on. It's um, it's been so great to watch your journey in Canada that you've been on as a coach here and obviously prior to that at New Zealand which I wasn't as interested in being an Australian but uh, yeah it's, it's as someone who's been following your journey it's, it's great to get you on for a chat and let me start here if I were to say the tough stuff to you with regard to coaching the craft of coaching, where does your mind go without any prompting? The tough stuff. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that's a great question. And I think the first thing coming to mind is just the blind spots, the stuff you don't know until you're in it and the mistakes you make that you never thought were relevant until you make them. And I would say... Um, some of the tough stuff that, that I've learned was sort of the exiting out of out of roles that have been the the toughest moments where you've uh, you've probably not exited um, in the right way and, and not realized the importance of how to exit. I think that's that's some of the tough stuff that, that coaches don't get taught, you know, and particularly in our industry where new opportunities come along, it's a fast pace 
business, um, you're in a job, new opportunities are presented, and you move on, but that move is very quick and sometimes out of your control. And, and I think that's that's some of the tough stuff that I've experienced where, you know, some of the relationships that have been really important to you <clears throat> just weren't managed properly through that period of time. Or uh, that, that tough stuff stands really front of mind for me is um, things that I just wish I knew. Uh, prior to, to making decisions and how to do those things properly. That was tough. Uh, two, two changes, one from New Zealand into Canada and then from the Canadian women's team into the men's uh, programme. Just two, two tough changes. That's funny, isn't it? Uh, this is actually how I opened the book, talking about this dynamic and how bizarre it is that you can have a career path that essentially renders itself useless almost when you get into the top job in that there are so many things that you're almost unprepared for. And there was a great interview with John Fox, the NFL head coach, you know, he'd coached a couple of teams into the Super Bowl, and he's specifically talking to assistant coaches who haven't been a head coach and says something on the lines of, you know, it's not just football when you're the head guy. Now, when you're when you're the main guy, there's all the other things that come along with it, and so you you have this mental model of what it's going to be like, and then it turns out to be some of that, but often it's also things that, like you said, are unforeseen, and and that could be as simple as doing the press conferences, or it could be as simple as, uh, or as difficult as, just the depth of the relationships that are required the conversations that need to be had, the weight of having everyone's performance linked to you and your role, including the staff, which is something you don't think about when you're an assistant. But, yeah, I just find it such a fascinating dynamic that you can be in the game for 20 years, 30 years, be a former player, have coached for 20, 30 years, and then when you get the head coaching role, it's just so different. It is. It's. Um like you've said there, there's there's a lot more to learn when you move into that role. But the expectation, the scrutiny and the consequences are way higher. So you're always trying to mitigate risk with your learning, which I think for a lot of coaches can put you in a performance cage where your upper acceptance limits, your, your self-belief starts to diminish and um, your fear of failure starts to uh, become the floor of that cage. And, and you'll see, you know, coaches that are outstanding in certain roles and then they move into other roles and they can't operate because, like I say, they're, they're learning on the job and, and, and it doesn't matter who it is, whenever you move into those head coach roles, whether you're moving from one country to another, uh, one club to another, there's always different dynamics that you're going to have to learn about. So, you know, I always think that as a, as a coach who moves into new roles, you know, the best thing you can do is have great mentors and, and also have, uh, have ensured that you've surrounded yourself with people that minimize that risk to you. And that's not yes people. That's not people who um, are, are going to, you know, just have your back. I, I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about competent people, even surrounding yourself with 
you know, very competent people that minimize those risks to you. And because they've done that job over and over again, they have attention breadth to be able to spot some of your blind spots. I think that's a, a critical part of this. I want to come back to the Canada thing because as national team coaches who are foreigners here, I think that'd be really interesting to dive into. But I want to go back to what you talked about in your first answer there. And it's not something that we traditionally think about, that kind of offboarding process or that transition process. What were you thinking when you when you gave that answer? Like, what what was it that you wished was different, or that you knew about specifically within that that transition period? I think both with the New Zealand and the the Canadian job, you you don't see all of the obstacles that are lying ahead in terms of you're gonna get into a role you can't really control you know, how that's going to be announced when you're in higher profile jobs, there's a higher chance things are going to get leaked into media, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that are out of your control. But again, if you go through this process again, you know that those things are likely to happen. So you have better processes in place to manage that process. And then you go through this, this whole experience and, in your mind, you get thrust into a role that becomes 100 mile an hour and, and things are moving very, very fast. It's like being on a train and you're looking out of a window and, and everything on the outside is just moving super fast. So what, what you tend not to do in those moments is look behind. You, you always seem to be looking forward to see what you have to get ready, what you've got to get into place. And when you thrust into those roles quickly, then you don't really have the time to, to exit properly. And I think that, you know, the top, top, top operators um, know how to exit properly and they, they plan it as part of, of their, their routine, regardless of what is thrust in front of them. I think for myself, both in those roles, I was like on the job either early because there was an announcement that had been leaked or you had to be somewhere, you know, within a week of, of accepting a job, you know, it's, it, and, and with that, you're looking forward and moving forward and, and now you're under the pressure of that role. So therefore you don't really look back to thank the people, you know, help you get there in the right way. And I'm talking a genuine, authentic way, nor, um, exit a role in a way where you absolutely feel like you put that down as good as you could. So I think they're, they're two big learnings for me, you know, on this journey. I think my next, my next sort of move would ensure that, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot more uh, cautious about, you know, how things are exited and I'm ready. I'm ready for that exit as well. I, I, I understand it can go a number of ways. Do you think we do enough as head coaches in advance to set ourselves up for that exit? Like I'm thinking about that, you know, it's kind of linked to Eddie Jones because he talks about it a lot, but that making yourself redundant idea where the job is to kind of set yourself up to exit. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that the club will always survive or the team will always survive 
and you're just passing through. And so it's that leave it better than you found it. Whereas what we tend to see through the nature of contracts and performance and all that sort of stuff is uh, a lot of coaches can tie so much to themselves that when they leave, there's just a massive vacuum and no one's left in a good spot, not the club or, nor the coach as a result of that. Yeah, I would agree with, with Eddie on that philosophy. I think, you know, when you've been in roles for maybe 10 years, seven years, it, it's easier to ensure that there are people that can step in and then take over and step in um, and, and have an understanding of the organisational knowledge to keep a, a plan or a vision moving forward. I, I think the, the the tricky part is it's, it's it's more the relationship that I'm I'm sort of alluding to here. It's those you've had deep relationships with people on a journey that have probably sacrificed for you and you've sacrificed for them. You've had some real meaningful moments, whether that was on the women's program in Canada or in New Zealand in the football uh, development space. And then you literally move and because you are now fully operational in a new role with certain targets and there may be a game literally in a month's time. You don't have time to, I don't know, to, to really do the relationship aspect as as real as you can and, and, and as properly as you can because I think the, the minute that a certain time period elapses, and I'd say this to all coaches, that these are the mistakes that I would have made, whether it was with my players or my, my ex-staff, people in the office that you'd have seen every day for 10 years. Um, you know, you move on too quickly. And, you know, for people, it's like, well, you're just up and left. Um, yeah, I didn't have a choice. It was, you know, straight into a, a game against the USA when I took the Canada job and then a week of being in it, then a Pan American Games with a completely new squad with pressure to, to be successful. And I, I think that's, that's been a huge learning. I would, I would certainly, if I was running courses <laughs> in, in coach education, I would be looking at these transitional moments, um, positive and negative you know, how coaches, you know, plan transitions and take more care of transitions and particularly the relationships of people that um, they've worked very closely with. Mm -hmm. There's also almost an element of kind of PTSD to that in that it's, yeah, it may not seem it at the moment, but I guess it is a sense of trauma in that you, yeah, you take these deep relationships and they're ripped from you and, and you, move on as fast as possible <laughs> and then uh, you, you probably get that you know tenfold on the way back um, whether you're ready for it or not but um, yeah it's a it's certainly a, a whole process that could be rethought and uh, replanned and like you said uh, planned while you're on the job um, more so than the current model that we're working with um, let me switch gears for a second. I, I, I want to talk about how you set yourself up for success. And you are a noted workhorse and <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of newspaper articles about you doing up to you know 80 hour weeks, but you're also a, a, a really thoughtful guy. And so I want to know how do you set yourself up for success? How, how do you, get balance like I, i'm expecting that 
someone that works as much as you, you, you love that work as well, but then you're a, you know, you're a father and a husband. So how do you fit all those pieces in together to make sure that you're a high performing coach? Yeah, it's, it's been a journey. I think for, for all coaches, you, you end up on this journey of trying to really figure out who you are, like your personality. Yeah. I would say come through my thirties into my early forties, I started to figure out who I was and, and more importantly, the issues that I have things that you've carried from childhood into adulthood that stop you from being sophisticated. And then you start to realize that there's some personality elements that are, that, that are part of the DNA that helps you to be, you know, super attentive and super focused OCD on the detail can work those long hours but also they have that sort of negative side, which takes you away from the family and the relationship elements that you become too obsessed with that, that one thing. And I think that's, that, that's been a big part of my journey is trying to understand who the hell I am, because if I don't know me, then I can't really help other people. And, and that's my role as a coach to help others unlock their potential but I've got to figure myself out first and, and how I impact people through my personality. And then knowing that you start to realize you, you, your life isn't full if you've only got on the pitch sorted out. And, and I went through periods, particularly in New Zealand, where the off field was just completely out of balance. And again, it wasn't until my 30s um, that, that I started to, to figure a few things out, why I behaved in certain ways. What were some of the, the the mental traps that I would fall into? Some of the habits that that I would I would again fall into, um, which which would be detrimental to a more holistic life. So, you know, again, a, a lot of you know thinking and deep reflections and conversations with with mental people, you know, figuring out you know why why am I the way I am? Like, what was my upbringing? You know, young young parents. Parents, 19, 20-year-old, when, when they had kids, I, I don't know how much attention I, I got during that period of time because I know my dad was out working a lot. Um, my mum had two kids under the age of two and she was like 20-odd-year-old. So it was probably a, a challenging upbringing. So you start to look and go, well, why am I always wanting to be front and centre? You know, why do I need this attention? What, where did that come from? And figuring that stuff out, it, it, it's tough. Like some of the narcissistic traits that that, that you have, you, you realize is born out of, you know, your, your childhood and some of that early formative years. And, and then you start to see how it's impacted positively and negatively your, your life. And, and I think it's, like I say, these last 10 years, I've had some good interventions. I had a, a psychiatrist, Dr. Kerry Evans, work with us. Um, back in 2010 and he, he really opened my mind into you know how these early years have, have probably uh, influenced a lot of what my behaviors that, that are inhibiting me as a high performer in adulthood particularly under pressure and and like I say we, we don't really see the true self until these pressure moments are there and then you come back to certain scripts that that you've developed in, in your personality as a as a child and if you haven't addressed that or aren't aware then you're getting sabotaged um quite frequently and not even knowing it 
And and this is, I guess, the journey that I've had to go on to then develop what I would call sort of high-performing behaviours aligned to some triggers as well as just a more holistic high-performance lifestyle, which involves, you know, sleeping, the fundamentals of exercise, and, and that's my personality. Like, I have to exercise to keep myself in balance, knowing exactly when I need to tune out and having behaviours like laptops closed at a certain time, the phones in the drawer so that I can't have that those urgent, important things grabbing your attention. And this is, I'd say, like part of my strength is, I don't, I don't know, you know how my brain's made up, but I have some creative start that hitters. And if I allow myself that ability for the snow globe in this mind of mine to settle, um, I come out with some, you know, pretty innovative stuff. So uh, it, it's learning about yourself and realizing, even as I've got older, that's changed. And I'm in my mid forties now, very different when I was at my thirties and how I've had to alter my patterns. But um, you know, people who work with us in camp, they see my daily schedule, and that's you know, two exercise blocks a day, you know, to ensure that I'm, I'm firing right through a, a, a 6.30 till 9.30, you know, work day with my players. So I'm always on tune and that's a 30 minute nap on, on most days during the day. And, and that, that's how deliberate it has to be for me to, to bring the best of myself. I don't think I've answered the family questions, but that's probably a, a question you need to ask my wife, I think. She, she'll tell you about that journey because there were times where I had gone completely down that other end of the spectrum. And I'm talking in New Zealand when I was balancing, doing the whole of football plan and the women's team at the same time. It was, uh, you know, getting into work at 3.30 a.m. and then off the field at 10 a.m., uh, 10 p.m. at night with the players. That, that was the work day. And that was for two years solid. And... Um, yeah, it had it had some pretty big impacts, positive and negative. I think you've just written the forward to the book, mate. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> you've you've touched on so much there, and a lot of that is really what I'm campaigning for in in this book. And that's for starters, it is for coaches just to start to identify as high performance knowledge workers. So we, we know the impacts on the brain. We know the impacts of sleep. We know the impacts of exercise of all these things. Like literally our job is to study that. Like we're supposed to be the experts in human performance and then adhere to essentially none of our own advice. And so, you know, all of that is our own is at our fingertips. And it's not to say that we need to completely adopt all of it. There's fits and spurts. You know, you're a, you're a tournament-style coach. It might differ for you if you were to, to go into a club atmosphere and be week to week or every second day or every day. But I think just that change in identity and happiness in being able to, like you, block out two exercise blocks, block out a nap, and then the day goes in after that, I think is a huge change for the whole industry, the whole sports coaching industry. Um, and 
what I wanted to ask you on the back of your initial exploration into yourself is were there any things that struck you that were maybe things that you thought were either good or bad that didn't necessarily turn out to be? And what I'm thinking here is for me, I'm big into Susan David's work on emotional agility and and one of the things that she's talk she talks about a lot is that we label things. Ego is bad, for instance, but it's not so much labeling things good and bad, it's that they are. They're human properties. We all have them. We all have an ego. We all have anger. We all have sadness. And so when you the second that you start labeling certain things, you gravitate towards them or gravitate away from them when in reality they're there anyway. So let's deal with them properly and healthily. Were there any things that came up for you? Because for me, ego was the big one. It's something that I'm still exploring, but that realization that it doesn't necessarily need to be bad or it can be useful, I guess, is the better way to put it, was quite revelatory for me. Yeah, I had a, I think an aha moment with, you know, um, Phil Stutz and Barry Michael's work, The Tools. Um, if you haven't read that book, it's, um, for me, it's a game changer because they they talk about the shadow and, and the shadow inside of you, which is arguably all those bad things that sort of devil inside of you that is there like whether you like it or not it's there whether it's the envy the jealousy the selfishness like as humans like we've it's part of our our dna like and a lot of people try and suppress it and and there's something about just embracing like all of those bad elements of yourself like the more you try to hide them the more you become that that sort of manipulative narcissistic um, mm-hmm. leader and and I think that's that's something I've had to to realize the minute you start moving into you know the place of sort of power and influence it does affect people like you you cannot not deny that if if you've gone into situations where you you've had some success and now you've got people looking at you and and you've been elevated uh, in society to you know somebody people want to listen to on coaching or whatever, it does affect you. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, I think what, what they, for me, what, what really was clear from, from that moment was embrace the shadow in you, like know what that is. And, and like have that conversation with yourself. This, this is the issues that I've got. Yes, I enjoy that. Why do I enjoy it? Why do I enjoy being in front and center? That feeling of, of, of being front stage and where did that come from? And, and, and embrace it because it's there. Like you, you, cannot, you cannot hide from the fact that, it, that it's there. It's, it is there. And for most people that elevate into these sort of roles, they, they'll experience similar elements where unfortunately those behaviors can start their um, come out of the shadow and become public and, and people try and suppress it and pretend it's not them. And I'm not like that, but unfortunately we are as humans. And I think the, the quicker you can address it and say, you know what? I am changing and I don't like it. This isn't who I am. 
But what's really changed is the context that I live in now. Pressure, expectation, scrutiny, power dynamics. And that's having an impact on my nature and my character. And I've got some flaws in my nature and character that leave me vulnerable to be more like this and, and go after more attention. And that's maybe why some mistakes are made around how you've handled the situation or so this is this has been a like I say a hell of a journey, but you a lot of people won't even push themselves out of that level of comfort zone where they end up in a situation where they could be vulnerable. Some people know themselves too wisely that they they don't want to even get into that scenario where they have to deal with that sort of stuff because of fear of of making a mistake. You know, the one thing I said right at the beginning, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes, just learning through it, hopefully better for it as, as I come out the other end. But um, as one coach said, it was Peter Reed. When I was at Sunland, he sat in front of all the academy guys. He says, every day, he says, I put my head out of a trench. He says, you guys have never experienced that yet. He says, I hope one day you do. Then you can truly judge us. And it's, it is, it was a, a profound statement because, you know, once you're out of the trenches and you're not in the academy structure and you're in great moments of judgment, you know, that's where you really do learn about yourself. And um, I'm still learning, <laughs> that's for sure. I speak a lot about coaches with, oh, coaches without that traditional elite playing background have there been any moments of imposter syndrome for you <sighs> i'd be lying to say there hasn't been i'd be absolutely lying about it it's the imposter syndrome you know kicks in when when you are having those emotional hijacks there's no doubt it it, it does kick in and and the external noise those contaminated thought loops can start ringing and that's normal if you if, if you understand how the brain operates it designs imposter syndrome places it in your mind to keep you away from from any risk um, to take you away from those dangerous situations and the only sort of dangers we have is sort of social sabotage in mm-hmm. in the 21st century we don't have a saber-toothed tiger chasing us or the fear of getting heads chopped off on a, on a battlefield. That's, it's, it's that social sabotage. So, you know, I think imposter syndrome is your brain trying to, to squeeze that fear of failure and upper acceptance limit on you. And I think the, the, the beauty with, with the work that I've done over time, I've had to practice what I preach. So having very deliberate um, thought loops having good triggers to, to get myself back on task and, and the simple things of, you know, surrounding myself um, on a daily basis with, you know, those images that just keep reminding you that, um, you know, you, you, you've got what it takes here because no one else will, no one else will um, un, until you, you know, you win in big games. So you've got to, keep building that for me the resilience of whether it's the books you're reading the pictures that i have on my desk sitting here that that just keep you reminded that uh that there's been achievement in there and there's a body of work a foundation that's got you to this moment it's not by chance 
It was by design. And yes, you're feeling this now, but if you can stop that emotion, which I've become better at, now you can get back on the task. And, and you know, we have things, whether it's on the sideline, um, in our training environments, and in my own daily life, little habits that, and processes that bring us back to we've got this. So I've got, a, I've got a guy on the bench that, you know, can see when I go into that red-haired emotional um, behavioral state, you know, when I'm out of my comfort zone and big moments, you know, whether it's taking on the men's team for the first time, you know you're at risk, but there's a person on the, the, the bench that has one responsibility around me. He has other responsibilities with the team, but it's to keep me in blue head. And when he sees certain triggers... He knows it could be anything from, is this imposter syndrome in his head now, like a mental thought loop? Is this him now getting aggressive? Because that's one of his tendencies. He's a, he has a, an anchor that brings us back to, um, you know, on task, next task, uh, what we would call that sort of um, overview and uh, mindset. You know those podcasts or books or movies where they're just so impactful on you that you are kind of transported to where you consume them? Like you can even visualize, you know, I listen to podcasts on my run, so I can actually visualize when I was listening to this this particular podcast. And it was Hugh Jackman on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Mm-hmm. And the reason I asked you about imposter syndrome is it is so vivid in my mind listening to this episode with Hugh Jackman, who, you know, it's Wolverine, but it's, you know, this is one of the greatest performers of of our generation. And I think he's a, a Academy Award away from the EGOT. So like just this dude has everything. And he's here he is sitting on Tim Ferriss's podcast talking about his own imposter syndrome about being on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like he was intimidated to be on there and he, he, he kind of explains why and, you know, he's pretty deep and meditates and reflects and all these types of things. But he, he talks about how he has that self-sabotage and, and what was going through his head about being on Tim Ferriss was that everyone that goes on that show and is interviewed by Tim offers all these solutions to problems in the world and Jackman's sitting there thinking like I don't have any of those you know I'm not something that people can learn from (laughs) and uh yeah man I was out on my run and I just uh, obviously I'm a Hugh Jackman fan I'm an Australian but I'm just sitting there going man this guy has imposter syndrome if Wolverine has it it it, it's okay for me to have it (laughs) and it was just this kind of moment of clarity but it's how it's how your brain works Cody, that this is like the more I've learned, like this this thing in your head was here to keep you safe, and and the thing that it, it has to keep you safe from now isn't what it used to. So we've sort of conjured up to keep ourselves away, f- uh, safe from the, the, the social sabotages, and and that's the biggest threat that we have these days. So imposter syndrome is a perfect way of stopping you from from going into those social settings of great judgment. That's, that's really what the biggest threat we have, like being judged, um, which if you're going to be a coach at that next level, you, you, you got to be ready for that. And, and that thought loop, 
is absolutely there to, to just try and take you away from that moment and put you somewhere safe. How do you go about putting those people around you to, uh, to support? Like how do you build your support infrastructure? You talked about you know, having someone on the touchline with you to, to help you navigate games. But what about more broadly? Do you look at other sports? Do you, do you have a coaching group? Like how do you build that infrastructure around you? so that you can, when you have problems, you can go to different people or go to a group or go to this one person, a mentor or or something else. How do you think about that whole process for yourself? Yeah, I think that's, for me, it's the the core of coaching. Like any coach that comes in thinks that, you know, that that this is about them. It's always going to come back to the people that you have around you because they, they tend to have skills of influence and, and often the, the head therapist can have way more influence on a player than you can with that conversation, a vulnerable conversation he can have with no power differential. Like it's, it's critical. The people have skills, but also you give them that license to be able to go on impact the performance and, 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 have the trust that it's a common vision and the common vision, as I'll keep saying, is, is the cultivating of safety. That, that's one aspect of, of making sure people are safe. And when people are safe, you know they're going to spread their wings a bit more. And, and I think if, if you are clear that the people in the environment are there to find a way to help this team win, and often it's when they move outside right on the, the periphery of, or the nexus point of where the coaching and the therapy meets, where they might be given some advice in a way that, that you could never have been able to give it and simplifying some technical detail in a way you never would have simplified it by an offhand comment. You know, this is the sort of license I think your support people um, can, can be given to push performance. And that's the common vision that you'd want people to come in with. Then there's a selection of people that, that go into that environment. And for me, it's again, it's two elements, the competence character, you know, that's always on the spectrum. Yeah. The competence is have they achieved the winning? Have they experienced this winning uh, formula? Do they understand the components of winning from their corner um, of, of, the, uh, of the performance, whether it's a medical or a psychology? And then the next piece, do they have the character under pressure and it's under pressure the character is most important like i say we we can all be good on the good days when the sun's shining but who are you when the the pressure the expectation and the scrutiny the consequences just being ramped up now can you still get to the edges of your creativity um in those moments so i think there are people that you've grown with that have worked with your processes and work with you that you're able to, to build a relationship under pressure that you know, um, have, have a tolerance level for high pressure moments. And then there are people you're developing, um, and, and working with to find out whether they can cope or more importantly, that they can add to the performance. So I always feel there's a, there's a balance of people that, you know, people you don't know. And, and it's that 
it's a real fine balance of, of having both in the environment. Like I say, that the one thing that, that I won't tolerate is when I know someone's had, you know, character behavior, like there's character issues and, and there's certain behaviors that have impacted the team negatively. And I'll spend a lot of time to figure that out before I, you know, take a job on. Um, I, I just won't tolerate that, that character piece that they have to be able to really do what they say they were going to do. And when they don't, be bloody honest about it. <laughs> like, I didn't do it because... Yeah. I don't know if yeah. that answers your question. I've gone off on a tangent, probably. <laughs> well, you don't give them the fluffy answer. Um, <laughs> there, you're exactly right. Where do you go for mentorship? So outside of that circle that inner circle, the staff. Well, you, I, yeah. I've been lucky. I've been really lucky with my, my evolution. And, and this is the people aspect. I realised growing up in New Zealand, it wasn't uh, the traditional football culture. Um, so I was able to break from traditional football for about 10 years. Like I grew up in an academy centre of excellence system and, and looked at coaching from a certain lens, got to New Zealand. And got to see things like rugby, cricket, netball, um, hockey. Yeah. And, and, and New Zealand just had this unique ability to be very good at Olympic sports and rugby and cricket um, with such a small population. And, and you, 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 you realise that they, they were super innovative. They, they, they would always find new innovative ways to to get something out of the performance, out of the, the small group they had. or Yeah, I was always intrigued by that. And what I thought was amazing in New Zealand, they had a, a, an informal coaches structure. The Academy of Sport had these seminars that were regular for all coaches to come together. And it was like this real fertile ground to, to learn about different codes. As I mentioned to you prior, I was learning about the metrics in AFL, which blew me away back in 2006, how far ahead AFL were at that stage. And, and I would never have got exposed to that if I was in an academy environment in, in the UK. You would never have got access to that, that information. And I felt like in New Zealand, having an open information uh, knowledge share and, and keeping it open was their strength. In many other places I'd worked, hiding knowledge and protecting knowledge was the strength in their minds. So I would say the mentorship came from being able to sit in, a, in an office in Southland in the Cargill with um, a lady called Pat Barwick, who was an Olympic hockey coach, an ex-Olympic player. She'd um, you know, won medals. Uh, an Ironman um, coach and an ex-athlete. So you learn some unique things about how far the body can go that, that I had no idea of. And then on the other side was Lester Routledge, who was an ex-all-black Italian rugby coach. And this was your office. Paddy, um, one of the top rugby referees, sat just over the way, and you got all of this, this dialogue going on in an open office environment. Then you're going into these um, coaching forums. And then as I moved up the coaching ladder, uh, New Zealand, you know, had these mentorship schemes and like elite 
coach pathways and I was fortunate to be on one of those pathways. So my mentors um, at the time were Robbie Deans, uh, ex-Crusaders coach. I, I had a, a good year of, of feedback there. I had people like Wayne Smith that you could connect with uh, frequently. Um, yeah, it was such a rich environment for your mind where I feel like I was able to, to get right ahead of the curve in football um, at an early age because I wasn't locked into like this linear and narrow thinking. And I think football now has gone into a, a more open um, thought process around how other sports can influence the performance. That's in the last 10 years, it's certainly opened up. So mentors, multiple, multiple. But when I have a tough time, I've got one guy that I can get, get on his leather sofa and um, he'll uh, he'll call it as it is. And sort you out, yeah. Yeah, sort us out. No, you're not wrong there. You're not wrong there. I remember after the Haiti game recently, I had a good half day at his house and um, he told us some home truths and uh, I didn't like it. But um, you take your medicine, you drive home from that meeting and you realise that, yeah, I've got to make some more changes. This is this is a tough road. I love Obstacles that make you stronger. There you go. Oh, yeah. And and to your point is, you know, those obstacles for a place like New Zealand are plentiful. And so there needs to be this creativity about how how they go about it. It's that, you know, it's that Moneyball idea that they only did that because they were searching for a competitive advantage (laughs) with what they had. And it's, you know, Brentford are going down a similar path, a tiny club in West London. Um, You know, there's all these different examples and they, it really comes from scarcity, um, that innovative thinking. And to be quite honest with you, mate, like the whole where others won't methodology came out of that same idea as well in that there's all these ideas, there's actually abundance of ideas in all these other sports and innovation comes from the outside, not the inside. And so it was a curious one for me why business wasn't looking at sport, which is where high performance has been managed for a hundred years and, and putting teams together and being able to manipulate teams and, uh, you know, achieve high performance. That's what we've been doing for a hundred years. Um, but then within sport, I was curious why there wasn't more sharing across and, and maybe that just comes from the Aussie rules background as well, where a lot of our tactics since about 2000 have come from other sports there's lacrosse ideas there. There's, you know, mass interchange, which comes from hockey. There's, um, you know, there's Jürgen Klopp's Gergen Press that went in in the, you know, mid-2000s. There's all these ideas and they come from other sports. And so I've been a huge advocate of looking elsewhere. Um, you know, domain knowledge and domain expertise is one thing. But when you want to be really innovative, you've got to look outside. Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> I mean, that's, but I think that's the culture that, that I felt in New Zealand and Australia. You know, those with the um, AIS and the Academy of Sports, I just feel like they were able to bring all of these sports together to work together to enhance the, the, the country's opportunities. And, you know, maybe other countries have followed since with uh, UK and 
in, in the Great British Olympic teams, etc. But you know, these were the for me the early the early innovators, the early adopters, and and it's a big part of when when you've said here like a big part of my drive is is to be first. Like, can you be first at something? And, and with the teams that I work with, you know, that's a big part of our, our mantra. Um, be first, be a pioneer in, in what you do. Like even coming into the men's team, you know, I'd looked at um, a lot of the lineups, the, the, the staff pictures from the years gone by, and I hadn't seen any females with the men's team, no, no female staff members. So one of my first uh, changes was to bring in, you know, more diversity in that group because you just know how much can be added. And, and you know, in terms of the, the conversations, the communication, the way um, the, the culture gets structured um, when you have, you know, high quality um, female performers in the environment. You know, what a, what a change that was. And, and you could feel it immediately, absolutely immediately. The, the dynamic was, was changed. Um, you know, having gone on a, an event with without my female staff, with a, a younger team, albeit, but then going into the men's team and having the female staff join, you could sense it. Very different. Um, so, you know, that was, I think, a first for us at the, at the time as well. As well as having a, a man move, uh, you know, from a, a, a female coaching role into a, a male coaching role. Um, on the international side, I think that was the first as well. So, mm. yeah, it's. Uh, I think the pioneering aspect is is right at the core of many people. Like we, we want to pioneer something, and uh, that's. I think every coach is there to to really draw that out of people. What can you be first at in life? Yeah, for us, it's been the implementation of Canadian coaches, which sounds bizarre that you would have Canadian coaches in Aussie rules football. Um, but for our longevity and our innovation, it's got to come from inside. We were talking before we came on air about, you know, Aussie telling New Zealanders what to do. And it feels a little bit like that or has felt a little bit like that traditionally here within AFL where it's just anyone that comes from Australia just comes and tells people what to do. Whereas, uh, yeah, now we've got some of my former players on the coaching staff and they're working their way through and it's a different message. And it comes from players who have been there and had to interpret the messages and know, know what's jargon and lingo and doesn't make sense. And, and even that, like that's not particularly innovative, but it creates such a different dynamic. And to your point, I mean, the, female coaches or female staff in those environments that's going to be steroids for a lot of people um i I don't think we truly appreciate that yet but a lot of programs are going to go through the roof when they finally get on board that train um because i yeah I, i just think that's dynamite waiting to happen uh let's just wrap up on the on the canadian thing though again as i touched on earlier i wanted to loop back to this as foreign coaches over here um firstly how much potential is in this country it it is it blows my mind that uh how much (laughs) sporting potential is here and uh it's so amazing to see 
your program's doing well, the men and the women, the, the basketball teams now. Um, I, I'm just completely in love with Canadian athletes. And this comes from even in my sport where Canadians are so tough um, that the, the toughest thing to coach in Aussie rules is toughness. And we don't have a problem with that here. <laughs> uh, hardworking um, <laughs> is being hardworking is built into the ethos and yeah. they're just tough, man. Like these guys grow up skating into each other at speed <laughs> and bouncing back up. So all the, re- all the rest of the physical stuff's easy after that, I think. But yeah, as, a, as an outsider coming in, what if you're, you know, you've seen the men's and women's sides of the games, you've seen, you know, New Zealand, Australia, and their sporting atmospheres. What have you made of your time here? Uh, I, I don't know if I've cemented my my thoughts or feelings on it yet. It's 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 still evolving. Um, again, moving from different sides of the of the spectrum on the male side and the female side, mm-hmm. you, you've seen different things. I, I think there's a there's an inherent DNA in the football. Um, side of things particularly on the male side where it's it, it's highly immigrant um based the, the population base that play our sport is is highly immigrant on the on the men's side and on the female side you know the big learning for me was exactly what you've highlighted there just this this grittiness like there's a there's a canadian grit it's it's a big part of i think the dna here um you know i think a lot of that stems from you know the country and the climate that you know the settlers probably had to deal with coming into this country you know the conditions they had to live in and an evolution of that in dna um so i think there's there's definitely that that i've seen in, in whether it was the bronze medal match in in 2012 where you know you just watched a group of people bind together and that's where I always feel with with Canadians that they, they can bind around the common good, and if the if if the purpose is really strong, they're willing to to really go beyond pain. Like in a lot of situations, per purpose gives way to pain. But I find that Canadian people, if if it's clear, and it's a the right cause, like they're ready to roll their sleeves up and and find that next gear. That there's something. Um, pretty special about that with Canadian people um, you know very strong morals and principles um, know what's right uh, so if you find the right cause like I say you, you'll have a group of women that are, are ready when they've got nothing left just to keep going like and they find these you know <laughs> next levels of, of human performance so I think on the men's side, it's a little bit trickier because, as I say, you're dealing with um, a population that a lot of their their parents or, or grandparents, their you know their first love for their sport is potentially their their original homelands. You know whether mm-hmm. it's Italy, Portugal, uh, Germany, Holland, England, Scotland, and because of that, there's a sort of always that sort of mixed feeling of you know the the, the grandfather or the father might want them to represent, you know, a, a country back in Europe or in the Caribbean. And then the kids being told, 
you know, I'm Canadian first and foremost. I've grown up here. I've heard the anthem every day at school. This is my country. So it's a, it's a little bit different. I think on the men's side, I think there's um, the motivation to be able to go and get contracts, um, you know, in Europe, etc. It, it sort of clouds the um, uh, that that that. I wouldn't say a commitment because when the guys, uh, if you can be clear on the course for these players again, like they'll run through a brick wall. We've seen that against the the US. They press for ninety minutes uh, when we beat them in October last year. But at the same time, it's it's very different to the men's in that sense. Uh, there, there's a lot more competing forces that, for me, uh, impact their ability to stay like. 100% Canadian, um, and that's not every player, but it's it's something that I've learned. You've got guys with South American um, heritage, Caribbean heritage, um, Serbian heritage. You know, there's yeah, it's it, it's an interesting dynamic that you you're always working out with the players. But all in all, what I've learned about Canadians, good people, um, and and will fight for a good cause and and fight. Uh, tooth and nail for a good cause. Yeah, the first change that I made when I became the head coach was to change the jerseys. Uh, they didn't have a maple leaf on them. And ever since, it's been a big maple leaf right on the chest. You know, not, not above the heart. It's literally right in the guts of the, the jersey. And it's for that reason. It's that, uh, that cause that you talk about. And you got to address it, eh? You have to address it. Like again, mm-hmm. it's if if that common cause isn't there, you you never build the team spirit that that really pushes the team into the next levels of chemistry and what I call tactical excellence. You know that cause, as I say, a lot of my leadership will be the seventy thirty rule, where you you know you're talking more about the cause than you are tactics, and and I think that's. Uh, a critical part of the leadership. Um, I remember Alfonso saying, hey, coach, we have a lot of meetings. Uh, and it, yeah, we do because <laughs> we've got to keep coming back to why we're here because at some moment, there's going to come a team across that, that, that pitch from you on the other side that are going to want it and feel it more than you. Their purpose will be greater. And that will give them that 10% that got them over the line. And I'm not going to put this team in that position. So anytime I can work on purpose and cause, uh, I will. So I totally agree with you, like having that clear identity, not only tactically, but culturally as well, is um, keys to to winning. John Herdman, as everyone's listening in uh, from all around the world, if they want to follow along with you, they can find you on Twitter. It's probably the best place. Yeah, I don't have much to say. I don't really know what to use Twitter for. I was told to get a handle way back when, uh, when the 2015 World Cup was on by a, <laughs> by a sponsor. So, and I had no idea. Like I, I always said, I'm not going on that Twitter. Like, I don't want to be part of that stuff. And yeah, So you'll find us on Twitter, but uh, I tend to just post what I think... Uh, like my godson's putting out a new record and stuff like that. So there's nothing really that interesting. I'm sorry. Better to catch us in a coffee shop somewhere. Starbucks and White Rock. 
<laughs> just float around BC looking for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, mate, awesome to, to chat to you. Thanks so much for your time and for coming on. Um, probably long overdue, but um, yeah, appreciate your, your thoughts and, and yeah, kind of, I guess getting a little bit vulnerable with us and, and, and helping you know, other coaches around the world unpack what they're going through in their journeys as well. So, um, mate, I truly appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, Cody. Uh, I can't wait for this book to come out as well. I mean, I've enjoyed your podcasts, but yeah, I can't wait to scribble all over your book with my notes. So hurry up and get it finished. No pressure. <laughs>